Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It's hard for me to pinpoint where and when my eating disorder began. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. He just couldn't sense that I was hopeless. You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. I began rereading my diaries and actually it enabled me to grieve for the little girl that got horribly lost and I just wanted to take her hand and help her get get out of that terribly dark forest that she was lost in for so many years. You're enough, you're more than enough, and you will always be enough. My eating disorder started at seven. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge, and your daughter's not there. There is hope at ended. Hi everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the amazing Genevieve Mora with me. Jen is not only a dear friend of mine, uh, but she's also a colleague and she's doing some incredible things, not only in the eating disorder space, but in the mental health space in general. Thank you so much for joining me, Jen. Thanks for having me back. Last time I did this, I was with my family, so it's nice to be solo and back chatting to you today. <laughs> Absolutely. And that was such a fantastic episode. We've had so much feedback on how helpful it was for people to get different perspectives from different family members. So I can't thank you enough for doing that one. Um, so, so, welcome. so today, Jenna's going to share with us her journey with anorexia, also with OCD, and tell us about some exciting new projects that she has channeled her lived experience into. Yes, amazing. I'm looking forward to it. So I just want to begin with you giving our listeners a little bit of an insight into your journey with both anorexia and OCD and how that all played out for you. Completely. So um, my battle with mental illness started around the age of 10 years old. So I was quite young um, and it started with anxiety. So I remember walking into the kitchen one night and seeing a glimpse of something on the news and it was something quite graphic. And that's kind of the moment as I pinpoint um, the beginning of my journey. And from that night forward, when I went to bed, I'd have to check around my room. I'd check under my bed. I'd check my cupboards, my curtains. And by doing what I call checking, I believed that I was keeping myself safe and out of harm. I thought someone was out to get me. And by doing this, it was protecting me um, and that carried on quite innocently for you know a year um, you know having to do it once before bed and then sometimes twice before bed and then three times before bed but pretty quickly it became quite consuming to the point that it was taking up hours of my day these behaviors and I was doing these behaviors with the genuine fear that if I didn't something terrible was going to happen to myself or my family um, so it was no real surprise that around the age of 12 13 I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder um, and my OCD was not around cleanliness and fear of germs it was around counting and checking and doing things repetitively until they felt right or complete um, and things just kind of progressed and I think for a while uh, my OCD gave me perceived control 
control, what I thought was control over my anxiety, but actually it was everything but control. It was very out of control. It was stopping me from being able to function normally at school, go out with my friends. Um, and my mind was really troubled at this point. And before I knew it, um, I had begun um, engaging in eating disorder behaviors um, and was very, very unwell and eventually admitted to Starship Children's Hospital, medically unstable with anorexia. Um, and when I was eventually diagnosed with an eating disorder that was kind of like rock bottom and um, my anxiety and my OCD had been terribly hard and exhausting but the eating disorder just added a whole new tear to what I was going through um, and it was many months in and out of hospital in both the general pediatric ward um, here in Auckland at Starship and also the child and family unit which is also the adolescent psychiatric unit um, so yeah getting well was a long long process but just like you Mills I'm proof that it's possible. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a roller coaster. It's, you know, we both talk about it being a really hard, excruciating, possibly one of the hardest things that we'll ever have to face in our lives. But as you say, we both are living proof that you can make it out the other side. And that's what matters. Definitely does. <laughs> now, what did it feel like when you were in the grips of both, you know, the anorexia and the OCD? Like, how did that feel for you? I completely lost my spark. Um, my parents often talk about almost looking like I had like a glaze over my eyes. My my spark in my eyes wasn't there. I was quite zombie-like, they describe it as. That's how they saw me. Um, I was always a very happy child, um, kind of life of the party, very energetic, did well at school. Um, and so I, I changed as a person. I was never aggressive or angry, which I know can be part of the journey for some people um, with an eating disorder, but I just wasn't the happy person I was before. Um, I was very consumed by my illness. Um, I spent a lot of time sleeping because it was the only time my mind got a break. I was very withdrawn. I was very isolated. I stopped seeing people. And I often talk about how I was not like ever great at maths, but my eating disorder and my OCD made me like a top mathematician. Like everything was calculated. I could work out, you know, division and, and times tables and subtraction and multiplication, whatever it may be. You know, it, it my brain worked in really unusual ways where I super focused on certain things. And that was all I could think about in that moment. So I'd zone out in conversations. Um, I'd make excuses not to see friends. I'd avoid any um, event that involved so uh, food. I'd, um, <laughs> I'd avoid any event that involved food, um, which turns out there's a lot of events. Uh, so I just, yeah, I really changed into a different person and my parents longed to have their happy gen back. They eventually got her back. They got her back. I know. And I got me back, which is even more important. <laughs> so, so important. Were there moments during that time where you just felt like utterly hopeless? Completely. I definitely did. I think there were many moments like that. And what I often talk about is in those moments, you know, I was very lucky to have people around me that held on to that hope for me. I woke up often wishing that I could just go to sleep and wake up when it was all over. Um, I had many moments of not being able to understand or grasp the fact that I could ever be free from these thoughts again. When your day is consumed by these negative thoughts and beliefs and rituals, picturing a life free of them is so, so challenging. And that's why I feel so lucky to do this work now and, and the same as you because we're proof that it is possible and I guess in those moments I wish I'd had someone to look up to and be like if they can do it I can do it too I spent more time probably feeling hopeless than I did feeling hopeful for a period of time and at some point that switched and I, I think a lot of it came to, down to trust and having to believe in myself and like I said before holding on to the hope that my parents were holding on to for me um, and believing in myself that I could get through it yeah believing 
in yourself often comes from, as you say, drawing on that hope that other people have and that belief that other people have on in you and then bringing that into your sort of space and your belief. Because um, it can be, real, as you say, really, really hard to believe that for yourself. And I think often like we talk about, Millie, is like even with positive mantras, like repeating to yourself and whether it's, you know, I believe in myself or I'm going to be amazing. You might not believe it at first, but I truly do believe the more that you repeat that, it becomes more ingrained and you slowly do start to believe that. And so I'm not saying that I had every moment where I was like, oh, yes, I can do this. I can definitely do this. There's no doubt in my mind. But I tried to kind of prioritize that thought as opposed to the negative eating disorder thoughts yeah. when possible. Key word there. <laughs> Do you feel like you recovered from both anorexia and OCD at the same time? You know, it's sort of the same, I guess, you know, speed. Or did you start to heal from one before the other? So this is going to be different for everyone. For me, my um, treatment was quite inclusive of both. You know, it was very much wraparound treatment, which I'm very grateful for. I think, you know, it's you can't just treat one part of the person because then there's a whole other part being missed. I actually asked my psychologist the other day because it seems so long ago now. And I was like, how did we work through my eating disorder and my OCD? And he said, at the time that I started seeing him, my eating disorder was killing me. So that had to be the top priority, but also a lot of the techniques and skills I learned through OCD therapy benefited my eating disorder recovery. So one of the biggest things I learned, and it sounds so simple, but it took me so long to get my head around, is that when you have an urge to engage in a behavior, by stopping and sitting with that uncomfortable feeling, sitting with that anxiety is the best way to overcome it because it always does pass. And like I always say in our groups, Millie, like the only way out is through, you have to face those fears head on. So that not only helped me for my OCD urges, but it also helped me for my eating disorder urges. Um, and a big thing for me also was dreaming and, and goal planning. And I remember my psychologist saying to me, when you have the urge to engage in a behavior, ask yourself, is this getting you close to your goals? So it was very kind of um, together, I guess. I guess when I was admitted to hospital the first time, you know, my my medical state was a priority. We had to fix that before anything else was going to work um, because it was, I guess, the most crucial thing in that moment. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, you know, it's it's a mental illness. It's your mind that needs the needs the work. So once I was physically in a better place, um, yeah, there was a lot of kind of wraparound support in terms of getting me to a mentally better place. Yeah, absolutely. That makes complete sense. Have you got any lasting physical implications from your eating disorder? So I have irritable bowel syndrome which I have heard is not that uncommon for people with eating disorders. Um, and I think that's something that's really important to remember. Like, although, you know, my eating disorder battle was about five years of my life, like that's something I might have to live with for the rest of my life. And I know it is somewhat manageable, but it's also a pain in the bum, sometimes quite literally. Um, but it's, it, it's a constant reminder of what I went through, which can be quite difficult sometimes. And I get quite mad. I'm like, I went through five years of like torture and yet here I am still dealing with some implications of it. But um, I, it is part of my journey and it's my experience and I'm just having to learn to manage it. Um, so that would be the main thing for me uh, would be the irritable bowel syndrome, which is, yeah, really fun. Not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> know that one very, very well. Um, have you become to a place of acceptance with your body now? I have. I have. And it's honestly the most powerful thing. And again, like I said, when I was unwell, I can't and I couldn't, I can't, I couldn't have ever imagined getting to that place where I accepted my body flaws and all. A big thing for me, um, you know, I'm a tall, slim girl. I'm six foot tall. I'm, I'm built this way. My family genes were built this way. Um, and regardless of that, I have stretch marks on my 
butt and my legs and my thighs. And, you know, I still have roles here and there and it doesn't actually matter. Learning to love myself as a whole person and accept myself as a whole person has been a really incredible journey. And I think acceptance came before love. And I think some days I still just accept myself. And some days I'm like, yes, I love myself. You know, it can be a journey to that. But the biggest thing that helped me get to that point was body gratitude and really focusing on the amazing things my body could do and not what was wrong or needed to be changed. It's so, so important. And as we often talk about that whole body acceptance piece, like we might not be able to get to that love piece for quite some time and that's okay. But if you can at least learn to sit with and accept where you're at, that is so, Mm. so important. And I think trust is a huge thing. Like I've built this incredible trust with my body that, you know, what I don't know. It's how do I explain this? My body trusts me and I now trust my body. We work well together. For a period of time, I didn't trust my body. It didn't trust me because it was scared it was never going to get fed again. I'm in this incredible place where I know my body's here to protect me and love me and keep me warm and keep me comforted. And I'm its best interest. I'm always going to be the first thing in my body's mind to look after me as a whole. So I don't know. I think trust is a really important part of that journey too. Trusting that our bodies are there to protect us and support us and love us. And what they look like is actually the least exciting thing about us. Absolutely. And I think eating disorder does a very good job at trying to erode any trust that we have um, in our bodies because obviously it doesn't want us to trust. And so I think once we've been in our eating disorders for for a period of time, we then are quite paranoid that we can't can't trust. And so often it can take a long time to rebuild Mm -hmm. um, that Mm -hmm. connection and, and trust back up with ourselves, but it can be done. I completely agree. Now, you are also a model. Has it been challenging to stay well whilst being in that industry? So this has been a topic that I found hard to navigate in some ways in terms of speaking about it. And I'm completely all about transparency and vulnerability and authenticity. So totally happy to talk about it. Um, So obviously people assume that when I say that I had anorexia, it was influenced by the modeling industry, which was actually not the case at all. Um, I became unwell uh, kind of during that process, but it was in regards to other external issues, not that. I think I almost feel um, luckier having returned to that industry. I don't do a lot of modeling anymore. Um, it's not really where my, my passions or my purpose lie. I'm, I'm much more, um, you know, passion and purpose purposeful when I'm helping others and, and making an effort there. But if I get a casting for something and it aligns with my values, then I'll go ahead and do it. Um, but I remember being at Fashion Week a couple of years ago and hearing conversations. And it's the same conversations you hear in like the staff rooms and at work. You know, it's not just restricted to the fashion industry, but I just felt so lucky. And we talk about this often to have gone through what I went through because those conversations just don't even excite me. Um, I was very lucky when I decided to go back into modeling, having gone through my journey. It was a decision that some people frowned upon and I was like well you know it's something that gives me excitement and I'm going to do it for me um that I would only do things that align with my values and also that I had to find an agency that loved me as me and so when I met with my agency the first meeting I had with them was I sat them down and I said hey look I'm Jen I've had anorexia here's my story and this is what you're going to get this is who I am I'm not changing if I get jobs based on this then amazing but if someone wants me to shrink or grow or get taller or shorter, then I'm not doing it. Um, And they were very loving and supportive and open of it. And my modeling agency has actually been amazing. They've removed measurements off their website, which is so cool. Such Um, an incredible job, haven't they? It's so cool because it's the least important thing. Like I think at the end of the day, people are beautiful regardless of what shape or size they are. And so focusing on people's beauty, not only externally, but internally, as opposed to whether someone's 
waste is this many centimeters or not is such a better focus so it's been an interesting thing for me to navigate as I said I'm not very active in the modeling world I do it if something pops up um but I think at the end of the day just like any industry there are a lot of pressures to be a certain way um and it's really important that especially young girls in the industry are giving the given the tools to um, stand up for themselves and also know that their worth is not based on the way they look. I think when you're constantly getting booked on jobs because you look a certain way or you're a certain size, it just kind of feeds that narrative. And so I think there's change being made in that industry. I think more change needs to be made in that industry. I think it becomes difficult because um, at the end of the day, it's like the designers and the, the clothing labels that are making the sizes so small in, in certain instances. And so then people are having to fit those sizes. Like it doesn't start at the age it starts much higher up in terms of the people designing the clothes designing the clothes and choosing the models and um people are making some change in that space especially in the body positivity community we're seeing um a whole new group of people in beautiful bodies um you know being booked to do different campaigns and i hope that only increases because if you're looking at someone on the front of a magazine cover you want to be able to relate to them oh absolutely and i mean i know you you and i have both been so thrilled to see the increased body diversity and inclusivity um, just in, in general, but um, also on the catwalks and and in the magazines and fashion shoots um, mm-hmm. and, and on social media. And, and that decision by, you know, some really major modelling agencies like IMG and, and your agency in model management to not display um, models measurements is huge it need needed to happen needed to happen ages ago, but at least it's happening now. Really proud of IMG. Like that's such a prominent mm. face and, and- presence in the modeling industry and for them to kind of set up that standard will hopefully tunnel through and feed through to other places too um I almost cried when I read that <laughs> I was like yes oh it's huge 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 um and I actually I, I think I saw it on 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 Cassidy's uh insta story and I just immediately went what <laughs> this is incredible yeah. um right. and and it is just I think it's the beginning of a real shift um, and so, you know, when I was in Sydney recently, I, I caught up with Chelsea Bonner, who uh, heads Bella Model Management. And, you know, we we're talking about the fact that it's no longer an exception to the rule to to have agencies where there's just this great diversity of bodies. Yes, she was kind of the first person to do that, but now it's being embraced on such a broader level, which is just fantastic. And I also don't like when they use the terms plus size and, you know, like, mm-hmm you're just you're a body and a person like it's the labeling that really does frustrate me and I think like we said without measurements and that that is changing um but it's going to take a lot of work to to change that industry even more but I I'm positive that it can happen yeah and and I agree with you around the labeling I'm actually there's a podcast episode that I'm doing with Stefania who is uh, quite a well-known model uh under Bella Model mm-hmm. Management and she launched a campaign uh some years ago around not uh, using the word plus size. Um, and I think we have to be so careful about the language that we use in so many different ways, um, not only mm-hmm. in this space mm-hmm. but mental health space in general um, because yeah, words can really have a massive, massive impact. Completely. What would be your advice to people working in the modelling industry who are struggling with eating disorders or who have suffered with them in the past? I think always it's important to put your recovery and your health first. At the end of the day, without your health, you don't really have anything. So you need to prioritize that. Um, If the industry is affecting you in a negative way, I would really recommend taking some time off and stepping away. At the end of the day, yes, you may be making money, 
But if you're really struggling and your body's shutting down, it's really not that worth it. Um, And I think it's about finding people that believe in you as the person, you as a whole person, and don't want you to change to fit their standards. I think the most powerful thing you can do in an industry like that is say, this is me, this is what you're getting. I'm not changing myself for anyone because by doing that, you're not only role modeling good behavior for yourself, but those around you too. Um, So my biggest advice would be that you just have to put yourself first, money, job aside, you have to be the number one priority it's not sustainable to work in an industry like that if you're struggling with your eating disorder without getting treatment and support absolutely and I think that going that goes for anybody working in any industry uh, putting yourself first above all else even if it's uni or school or work whatever it is put yourself in your recovery um my dear friend Mia Findlay always says, recovery is the top priority. And it has to be, it always must be above all else if you are going to be successful in conquering your eating disorder. And I've heard people say, and I completely understand, I know someone brought it up in support group once, but you know, it's so easy to say that. And it's like, but I still have to go out and work because I have children I have to look after. And we're not necessarily saying quit your job and focus only on your recovery, but there's things you can put in place at work, like setting alarms and having set meal times and, you know, letting someone at work know perhaps your boss that, you know, you, you might have to do things a bit different because your recovery is first, or you may have to take an hour out each week to go to an appointment. Um, It's not to say that you have to stop your life altogether, but it just, and anything you do, like Mia says, has to be your top priority. Do you get frustrated by the way that people flippantly throw around the term OCD when they aren't referring to someone who actually has a clinical OCD diagnosis? I do. I think I get frustrated and then I also get um, passionate. I think I get frustrated because as someone that struggled with it so much, I'm like, oh, this is so annoying. Like, you're not OCD. Like, it's something, it's it's bigger than this. And then I get passionate because I think it's such an incredible opportunity to educate someone. I I get frustrated, yes, and I also can't blame people because people just don't understand what OCD is, and I feel like I have some responsibility to kind of help people understand that, and so I use it as an education kind of space, but um, it is frustrating, and I think, you know, I've caught myself saying it at certain times, not so much now that I'm aware of it, but, you know, pre my OCD, post my OCD, you know, I'm very aware. It's like I've got alarm bells. When someone says that in a public setting, I'm like, oh, heard that. Yep. Um, I think it's it's the same sort of thing. Like when people chuck around, I'm so depressed. I'm so anxious. Like it's again, how physical and mental illness is treated so differently. You wouldn't be like, oh, I'm so kidney stones. Oh, I'm so cancer. I'm so heart disease. Like it's just about stopping and thinking about the implication you could have on people when you say stuff like that and I'm part of an um, online support group called Fixate for um, New Zealanders with OCD a Facebook group and often you know we'll see posts come up you know for example there's a coffee shop called obsessive coffee disorder and it's like I know they're taking a play on words but they're taking a play on words from something that's actually quite serious and debilitating and people often think you know we're over exaggerating over exaggerating that's not a word we're exaggerating and we're you know, we just should just shut up and focus on what we're doing. But actually, it's not okay. If it affects anyone, it's not okay. Um, and so, yeah, just using it as an education tool, I guess. But yeah, you probably, I'd say you'd be surprised, but you're probably not surprised. It gets thrown around all the time. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised. I've, I hear it all the time like you do. And I, it, you know, I, I always, because I've 
gained more of an insight through, you know, knowing yeah. you in terms of just how debilitating it can be. Um, yeah. I too get quite passionate about about yeah. defending that. What do you? My mum was actually at a cafe. Oh, sorry, I just quite briefly say my mum was at a cafe. I feel like it was kind of recently, and I also wasn't in Auckland. I don't think this story is a bit blurry in my mind, but um, she actually went up to the barista and explained. I think they were wearing a t-shirt that said something, and it was playing on the words OCD. And she said, "Actually, my daughter has OCD. Like, it's it's probably not what you." think it is and just used it as an education tool which I think is important and I also which I've done on a few occasions um, messaged a clothing company recently on Instagram because they did a post of their clothes lined up and said oh living our OCD dreams um, because their clothes were all in line and I messaged being like hey just a heads up um, I'm here to educate you OCD is not a dream it's a complete nightmare um, and also having your clothes lined up beautifully is not really a great representation of what OCD is and they were very their response back was actually incredibly um positive in terms of thank you for educating us we'll be careful when we think or when we post but yeah it, it does fascinate me some people just ignore it or get angry but these people handled it really well so I was quite quite impressed and we need definitely need more of that what yes. do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about OCD I think um, everyone thinks, and perhaps this is because it's often portrayed in movies and shows and stuff, is that people or all people with OCD um, have, you know, a fear of germs or are very clean and tidy and organised. Um, and I'm testament to that. That's not the case for all of us because my room was a complete mess and yet I was still diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. I think people find it hard to understand that it's not a choice and they're not choosing to do these things. And I think as someone that had OCD, um, and I can probably speak on behalf of everyone with OCD it's the most frustrating thing because you know that opening and closing a door four times isn't going to be the difference between your parents dying in a car crash but when that feeling feels so real you do it anyway um it's a really hard illness to explain because everything just feels so real and you know it's not but there's that slight chance that something could happen, so you do it anyway. And um, so I think that's probably the biggest one, that OCD is not quirky, it's not fun, it's not an adjective, um, and it's not always about being clean, organised, tidy, um, or having a fear of germs. Can you share with our listeners your top three tips or tools for recovery from OCD? I think like anything, uh, telling someone that you're struggling is a really important first step and um, people can only help you with what information you give them so making sure that you're allowing people in and letting them know that you're struggling and um, also not feeling shame for what you're going through reminding yourself that this is not a choice you didn't choose to have OCD or you didn't choose to have an eating disorder um, and that it is possible to work on it I found uh, therapy incredibly beneficial I did exposure response therapy um, which was about being exposed to the source of anxiety and fighting that head on and that was pretty life-changing for me and then also so like as crazy as it sounds just stopping and breathing like and and remembering and realizing and knowing knowing that the anxiety will pass and that a thought is just a thought it's not reality and it actually can't harm you um and like anything you know like an eating disorder the only way out is through the only way to overcome those fears is to face them and not engage in them absolutely those are great tips since recovering, you've been very active on social media, yep. sharing some amazing recovery-focused content. And more recently, you've jumped on the TikTok bandwagon. There has been a lot of talk about some of the highly triggering and toxic content that is appearing on TikTok. What would your advice be to listeners about how to navigate it safely? Because I know that you use it in such a positive way. And I've had mm -hmm. so many clients of mine say, oh, Jen's great on TikTok and I love her videos. And so it's obviously a great way to connect with people 
in a recovery focused sense but you and I both mm-hmm. know that there is a lot of really highly toxic content out there and not using the platform myself I find it sort of hard to to advise people on how to go about that mm-hmm. I know on Instagram how how to people people keep themselves safe but with TikTok how how would you suggest they go about that because I know that you said to me that you can't control what comes up in the what page is it called the like for you page mm-hmm. so what what would be yeah so for a bit of context yeah so for a bit of context um unlike Instagram where you choose who you follow a lot of the time the stuff that pops up on your feed or your for you page um is content that you haven't chose to follow so they they pump stuff out to people hoping that it will then engage you and then you'll follow them uh and so it is a bit harder to avoid seeing triggering content and unfortunately on TikTok there is a bit of that um and I know I know this for a fact that TikTok are working on um, measures to support people with eating disorders and disordered eating and get content like that off the app as soon as they possibly can um which is awesome so it's a work in progress um i think like instagram although it's a bit different there is a block and delete and remove button and so i still find myself not that i get triggered by it but i get frustrated i report or i block usually for the benefit of the individual that's posting it if i see something triggering i know that they are not well and they need help and i would hate for them to regret in six months that they posted this online for the world to see and so often i report stuff and i block stuff um in the hopes that it will actually help the individual in the moment too um, but I think the best thing you can do if anything pops up on your feed to yeah remove to block delete um, and I think the more you do that I don't I don't know how the algorithm works but often it feeds you content that you're sort of interested in and so if you're viewing that content continuously whether that's to self-trigger or whatever it may be it's going to pop up more and so the best thing you can probably do is go and follow a whole lot of positive accounts a whole lot of like happy accounts just flood your news feed or your for you page with positive uplifting content or inspiring recovery content so it kind of blurs out and pushes away that negative stuff Um, that would be my best advice and then at the end of the day if it's triggering you too much step away it's unnecessary it's not recovery focused or in line with your recovery goals you don't need to do it take a break I know some people that have taken a break from TikTok um, or social media in general and have found it so helpful because they're in a really um, difficult period and don't need that external influence and I think finally also remembering that what you see online is such a curated version of someone's life you have no idea what they're going through on a whole you're seeing a 15 to you know or a seven to one minute one minute second that's not a word one minute video you know it's not the full picture and so remembering that too is really important absolutely what do you think needs to be done in order to mitigate the risk of social media exasperating the current eating disorder crisis I would like to see more guidelines in place. I know it's such a huge beast because social media is just accessible, you know, everywhere and there's millions of people on these platforms. Um, I like to believe that people are doing the best they possibly can in terms of social media platforms. I know Instagram's introduced um, some kind of guidelines and support um, and filters for content um, eating disorder focused or, or not, not in line with recovery. Um, but I think there needs to be more guidelines. I'd love to see more guidelines around like fitness influence and food influences and just influences in general and what they're sharing because I think some of them get to the point where they lose the or they they forget that them being an influencer 
is influencing a whole lot of people and what they say people are listening to. And so I think there needs to be more guidelines around that. Um, and also some more responsibly taken from the, um, the social media companies in general. I think, again, I like to think they're doing the best they can. There's a lot of issues that they have to cover, but whether that means more moderators or more people looking at the reports or more support, support available in app, I'm not entirely sure. Um, and I think it will continue to develop and change as social media becomes more of their base. I think like we always say at Voices of Hope, um, which is a charity I'm co-founder of, uh, you know, social media is not going anywhere. And so it's up to us as consumers of social media and viewers of social media to use it in a positive um, and inspiring way. And something I still do before I post is I ask myself, is this going to benefit or harm someone's recovery or journey? Because something that might be helpful to you may not be helpful to someone else. And I think just taking that moment to stop and think about the implications of your post, especially those who are influencers, not saying that I am, but people on a larger scale in terms of what products are influencing or sharing, um, it's really, really important to stop and think. Absolutely. Can you please share with us your top three tips for recovery from an eating disorder? Again, um, eating disorders are very secretive and manipulative illnesses, but people can only help you with the information you give them. So making sure you're finding someone that you can trust and be open and honest with them. And Millie and I often talk about in support groups, if you struggle to express that verbally, it's really important to try and write that down and then hand that over to someone. It gives you time to uh, reflect on what you want to say and it gives a receiver time to reflect on what you have said. Um, I think following people and, and surrounding yourself with people that inspire you and uplift you and that don't trigger you um, and that are really recovery focused and in line with your goals. Um, again, Millie often talks about, you know, doing a social media cleanse. And I think it's such a great thing because as you go through your recovery journey, what triggered you then and what triggers you now may change. And so keeping on top of that. Um, and my third tip would be reminding yourself that, you know, food is a necessity and, it can't harm you. I think our eating disorders feed us this narrative that it's terrible for us and it's bad for us and that it's going to ruin us or make us lose control. And actually food is a necessity for life. There's a quote I love and it's like restricted diet, restricted life or something along those lines. It's incredibly true. You need to nourish, not punish your body. It needs food. It is deserving of food and focusing on the amazing things your body can do when it is fueled because it can go and live and not just survive. Um, that would be probably my top ones for now. Yeah. Love it. Amazing words of wisdom from you, as always. Now, I know all about the exciting projects you've been working on since you've been recovered, but there will be listeners out there who aren't aware of them. So please tell us what you've been up to with both Voices of Hope and Love Your Kite. So it has been a busy, busy year. I don't actually like the word busy. I'm trying to use like full. It's been a full year. I live a full life, not a busy life because... I think it's nice in the word busy. Anyway, that's a complete tangent. Um, but Voices of Hope has been doing um, incredibly well. This is the mental health charity that I'm the co-founder of. We're a lived experience um, advocacy group creating lived experience content in terms of stories, um, both visual audio and written um, and it's been really exciting we released a book in January it's a guided journal and it's full of the tools Jazz and I used when we run well uh, and so it's a really practical guide to support people through their recovery journey uh, we also launched an app through Voices of Hope called Messages of Hope and it sends someone a positive message every day from Jazz and I to remind them they're not alone in their fight that they um, are worthy and deserving of recovery and that the um, recovery is possible and so they get a little ding to their phone every day 
day. And it's just really a reminder that they're not alone in their fight and then we're holding on to hope for them um, until they find that themselves. And as of yesterday, we've just launched a clothing line, which is so exciting. Um, and the exciting thing about the clothing line is that 100% of profits go to Voices of Hope. So it's a way for us to continue to do the work we're doing. But not only like are you raising awareness when you wear this merch not merch where you wear this clothing you're also helping us continue our work and saving lives um our work has proven to do that we've received multiple messages of people saying you've just saved my life you know from mums parents children's whatever it may be um i feel incredibly lucky to do this work and everything we do is based on the lived experience so we have some events coming up this year that we are part of in terms of speaking at not necessarily our own events we're working on some cool campaigns um, that we hope to release over the next couple of months. Um, and it's just all go. It's all kind of hectic, but we're loving it. <laughs> and love your so kite. Uh, yeah, and love your kite. So just because I wasn't full, my life wasn't full enough, I decided to never, add something else. Never. Yeah, never, never. It was probably about eight months ago, I had a lady called Hannah Hardy-Jones reach out to me on LinkedIn. And it was the first time I think I've checked LinkedIn because I don't really know how to use this platform. Um, but I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And she said, hey, I run this platform called the Kite Program and people have reached out to me saying they think it could be really beneficial for people um, experiencing an eating disorder. I'd love to chat with you. And I was like, oh, this sounds way too good to be true, but I'll jump on a call, see what it's about. Um, and after the first call, I was sold. I was like, this sounds absolutely incredible. So Love Your Kite um, launched. We did a $25,000 crowd fundraising campaign which was so stressful but also showed the need um for support because people were willing to support um our dream of bringing this app resource to life and love your kite launched i think it was in february now um, and we have close to 1000 users which is awesome from all around the world and it's a practical app resource to support eating disorder recovery it's broken up into modules there's about 30 modules at the moment and each module takes about um seven to 14 days to complete you get one activity a day and that's very frustrating for some people but the idea is that you have time to really sit down and reflect and and give your all to that one activity we don't want it to be all consuming or overwhelming um, and the modules cover topics such as uh, connecting with friends communicating with family navigating holidays navigating social situations there is a huge number of different modules and it's self um self-led so you pick what you want to work on you can always go back and look at it again um so i'm really excited it's out and about in the world um we spend a lot of time getting this uh, app resource together a lot of content writing um a lot of love we had a couple of other lived experience voices check over the content we also had clinical a clinical team um the amazing shelly beach practice here in new zealand uh, review the content too because although it's not a medical um or it's not medically aligned like the content itself is, is very holistic, I guess, in terms of, you know, creating vision boards and lists and all that sort of stuff, as opposed to medical content. We wanted to make sure it was safe for people because at the end of the day, people's well-being and safety is our number one priority. And so we make it really clear that it's not to be used instead of professional help, it's to be used as well as. And the way that I think I would have used this when I was unwell was on the days that I didn't have appointments or in between appointments, um, because it's always there, it's always accessible. And we've kind of described it as like a friend in your pocket. It's always there for you when you need it, whether that's now, later, middle of the night. Um, and it's just full of, of, of practical tools to help people through their journey. It's simply incredible. And you are just amazing. Everything that you put out is just 
Incredible. And you have such a depth of knowledge and just this wonderful um, passion within you to keep spreading the message of hope. And I am so grateful for all the work that you do, as I know so many others out there uh, in this big wide world of us, uh, big wide world of ours. Are. Well, <laughs> well, likewise. And I just feel, I mean, meeting you has been one of the best things in my, my life so far. I think when you meet someone that's equally as passionate and determined and, you know, shares a similar story, I just it's the most empowering thing. And I think, you know, we run weekly support groups together over Zoom since COVID and to be able to do that with someone that I just admire and love so much is just the best thing in the world. So thank you to you too. It's very, very special what we have. It's very special. And I don't think either of us ever take it for granted. We often have moments where we're both just like, oh my goodness, wow, happy that we get to do this together. Sometimes the universe just aligns. It does, it does. And it did for us. Definitely. What is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? My eating disorder journey has taught me a lot. I learned this when I was in hospital through a little girl who's not so little anymore. She's 12 years old called Eva, who's now like a family member to mine um, or to me, to mine, a family member to mine, a family member to me. Um, She was in the room next door to me and she was a reminder every day. And something that her mum says is life is a precious gift. Um, I had an illness that I could get better from, whereas she's faced with chronic illness probably for the rest of her life. And I, I use that as inspiration to not only fight for myself, but fight for her too. So I think remembering that life is a precious gift and that recovery is possible. And that like we often talk about when you come out the other side, you've got this incredible opportunity to kind of turn your life into what you want it to be. I almost feel sometimes like I've been given a second chance. I feel And again, I think it's probably in the place I am now. I wouldn't have said this when I was in the depths of it, but I'm so grateful for what I went through because I'm more empathetic. I'm more passionate. I have a purpose. I have a job I love. I'm able to support other people and help other people through their journey. And there's nothing better than that. Um, And I think another thing that it's taught me is just to always be kind. You never know what someone's going through, especially when someone's struggling with an eating disorder. A lot of the time you cannot tell from someone's physical appearance. You never, ever know what's going on in someone's mind so just always being kind um to those around you such such important um valuable things to have learned and and things that I think really influence the way that we live our lives now post eating disorder um and I like you feel really really grateful because Mm -hmm. we wouldn't be doing what we're doing we wouldn't be living life the way that we are and you know treating every day as an absolute gift if we hadn't been through what we'd been through I think also on that note like things that probably would have worried me in the past don't worry me now because I'm like if I've been through an eating disorder if I've fought mental illness I can do anything you know it just makes things that perhaps would have worried me so insignificant and it just helps me cope with things in a, in a better way and I think like we talked about at group um, the other day is you know we both still have these wow moments I often have moments where I'm like wow, this is crazy. Like the other day I was driving somewhere and I was hungry. And so I stopped and picked up a sandwich. Like my eating disorder self would have never have done that. And it's moments like that where I just sit and I go, wow, how cool is life? How cool is it to live free of an eating disorder? Absolutely. Those wow moments are the best. In your opinion, what are the best ways that people can support someone who is going through an eating disorder? 
I think one of the best things you can do is just listen. I think um, as humans, we like to give advice and try and fix people ourselves, but perhaps we're not the right people to do that. And so I think being heard is one of the most powerful things. If you're struggling, knowing that someone is listening to you and hearing you with no judgment and is there for you is incredibly helpful. I think for me, when I look at my friends, um, the best thing that they probably did was continue to act or not, not act like things were normal, but continue to invite me to things and not exclude me to, from things, even though they had no idea how best to handle it. You know, for an example, uh, one of them was having a birthday dinner and they struggled with whether they should invite me or not. And by inviting me, it gave me the choice to say yes or no. I didn't feel like I'd been shunned or excluded from my group of friends. I think, again, being kind. I know something my parents did a lot of was educate themselves. I think what a lot of people think eating disorders are is not actually what eating disorders are. And so if you're supporting someone that's struggling, the best thing you can do is educate yourself on what that individual is going through um, and not try and understand, but more validate what they're going through. So what used to frustrate me is people be like, oh, I understand you're really struggling because I was like, no, you have no idea. But, you know, things like oh, I hear you, I hear that you're really struggling. This must be really tough. It's much more validating than people trying to pretend that they know what it's like. Um, and also just holding on to that hope. I think there were many moments where my parents were probably like, oh, this is dire. This is not good. But they never showed that. Whenever they were around me, they fully wholeheartedly believed that their daughter was going to get better. And because they did that and they showed me that, I started to believe that in myself. And I think also something that was really helpful, um, I felt a lot of shame for what I went through. And I think one of the big turning points, and when I look back and reflect now, was the fact that my parents went out and told everyone that I had an eating disorder. You know, my mum was a bit more like, I think we talked about this in the other podcast, but she was a bit more like, oh, I don't want people to judge us. They might think, you know, we're the crazy family. We've done something wrong. And my dad was like, no we're telling people because we need support too and so getting support yourself if you are supporting someone because it is very draining but also not being ashamed you wouldn't be ashamed of telling someone that your child or your friend or family member had cancer it's an awful awful illness just like an eating disorder is um so that would probably be yeah my, my best advice for that and what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with especially those who are still struggling so much. <laughs> I'd like to say so much. I think um, full of it. I know. I know. Honestly, I could. Yeah. Where do I start? I think, like I've said before, it's incredibly important that you're open and honest with what you're going through, that you don't allow shame to take over you or you do not let your eating disorder tell you that you're not worthy or deserving of help because you are. I think um, if you're questioning, if you are sick enough or thinking you're not sick enough, you are sick enough. I think even if you have that rhetoric going around in your head it's proof that you are struggling and you do need support and to keep advocating for your care I think um, the thing that I struggle with the most is when people come to me and say hey Jen like I finally reached out for help and I was turned away um, and kind of get deflated and defeated from that it's important to keep on going I think Millie was the same but I saw multiple psychologists before I found my fit you have to keep fighting for your, for your care and also know that recovery is possible I know in the moment right now it doesn't seem like you'll ever be free or you'll ever get better but you can the only way out is through you need to fight it head on you need to say no to those urges because when you're doing that you're saying yes to life amazing you are incredible as always and I know 
bet there will be so many people out there that will have been furiously writing down uh, all those tips and all that knowledge that you have just shared with us. So thank you from the bottom of my heart as always. And I cannot wait to finally hug you very, very soon after so long apart. The Trans-Tasman bubble is finally happening and we're going to finally be able to run an in-person group again. How exciting. It will be magical. I'm just so grateful that you had me on your podcast again, Millie. And um, as I said, I love working alongside you and having you in my corner and hopefully vice versa. So um, I cannot wait to give you a giant squeeze when I see you. Thank you, darling. (laughs) Cannot wait. Lots of love and we will talk soon. Amazing. Thank you, everyone. Bye. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? 